Section 10. Is There No Help? Part 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. The question of prison reform is all the more important because it is only by the agency of the jail that society attempts to deal with its hopeless cases. If a woman, driven mad with shame, flings herself into the river and is fished out alive, we clap her into prison on a charge of attempted suicide. If a man, despairing of work and gaunt with hunger, helps himself to food, it is to the same reformatory agency that he is forthwith subjected. The rough-and-ready surgery with which we deal with our social patients recalls the simple method of early physicians. The tradition still lingers among old people of doctors who prescribed bleeding for every ailment, and of keepers of asylums, whose one idea of ministering to a mind diseased was to put the body into a straight waistcoat. Modern science laughs to scorn these simple remedies of an unscientific age, and declares that they were, in most cases, the most efficacious means of aggravating the disease they professed to cure. But in social maladies, we are still in the age of the bloodletter and the straight waistcoat. The jail is our specific for despair. When all else fails, society will always undertake to feed, clothe, warm, and house a man, if only he will commit a crime. It will do it also in such a fashion as to render it no temporary help, but a permanent necessity. Society says to the individual, to qualify for free board and lodging, you must commit a crime. But if you do, you must pay the price. You must allow me to ruin your character and doom you for the rest of your life to destitution, modified by the occasional successes of criminality you shall become the child of the state, on condition that we doom you to a temporal perdition, out of which you will never be permitted to escape, and in which you will always be a charge upon our resources and a constant source of anxiety and inconvenience to the authorities. I will feed you, certainly, but in return you must permit me to damn you. That surely ought not to be the last word of civilized society. Certainly not, say others. Emigration is the true specific. The wastelands of the world are crying aloud for the application of surplus labor. Emigration is the panacea. Now I have no objection to emigration. Only a criminal lunatic could seriously object to the transference of hungry jack from an overcrowded shanty where he cannot even obtain enough bad potatoes to dull the ache behind his waistcoat and is tempted to let his child die for the sake of the insurance money to a land flowing with milk and honey where he can eat meat three times a day and where a man's children are his wealth but you might as well lay a newborn child naked in the middle of a new-sown field in march and expect it to live and thrive, as expect immigration to produce successful results on the lines which some lay down. The child, no doubt, has within it latent capacities 
which, when years in training have done their work, will enable him to reap a harvest from a fertile soil, and the new sown field will be covered with golden grain in August. But these facts will not enable the infant to still its hunger with the clods of the earth in the cold springtime. It is just like that with emigration. It is simply criminal to take a multitude of untrained men and women and land them penniless and helpless on the fringe of some new continent. The result of such proceedings we see in the American cities, in the degradation of their slums, and in the hopeless demoralization of thousands who, in their own country, were leading decent, industrious lives. A few months since in Parramatta, in New South Wales, a young man who had emigrated with a vague hope of mending his fortunes found himself homeless, friendless, and penniless. He was a clerk. They wanted no more clerks in Parramatta. Trade was dull. Employment was scarce, even for trained hands. He went about from day to day seeking work and finding none. At last he came to the end of all his resources. He went all day without food. At night he slept as best he could. Morning came, and he was hopeless. All next day passed without a meal. Night came. He could not sleep. He wandered about restlessly. At last, about midnight, an idea seized him. Grasping a brick, he deliberately walked up to a jeweler's window and smashed a hole through the glass. He made no attempt to steal anything. He merely smashed the pane, and then sat down on the pavement beneath the window, waiting for the arrival of the policeman. He waited some hours, but at last the constable arrived. He gave himself up and was marched off to the lockup. I shall at least have something to eat now, was the reflection. He was right. He was sentenced to one year's imprisonment, and he is in jail at this hour. This very morning he received his rations, and at this very moment he is dodged and clothed and cared for at the cost of the rates and taxes. He has become the child of the state, and therefore one of the socially damned. Thus, emigration itself, instead of being an invariable specific, sometimes brings us back again to the jail door. Emigration by all means, but whom are you to emigrate? These girls who do not know how to bake? These lads who never handled a spade? And where are you to emigrate them? Are you going to make the colonies the dumping ground of your human refuse? On that the colonists will have something decisive to say. Where there are colonists, and where there are not, how are you to feed, clothe, and employ your immigrants in the uninhabited wilderness? Immigration, no doubt, is the making of a colony, just as bread is the staff of life. But if you were to cram a stomach with wheat by a force pump, you would bring on such a fit of indigestion that unless your victim threw up the indigestible mass of unground, uncooked, unmasticated grain, he would never want another meal. So it is with the new colonies and the surplus labor of other countries. 
Emigration is in itself not a panacea. Is education? In one sense, it may be. For education, the developing in a man of all his latent capacities for improvement, may cure anything and everything. But the education of which men speak when they use the term is mere schooling. No one but a fool would say a word against school teaching. By all means, let us have our children educated. But when we have passed them through the board school mill, we have enough experience to see that they do not emerge the renovated and regenerated beings whose advent was expected by those who passed the Education Act. The scuttlers, who knife inoffensive persons in Lancashire, the fighting gangs of the west of London, belong to the generation that has enjoyed the advantage of compulsory education. Education, book learning, and schooling will not solve the difficulty. It helps, no doubt, but in some ways it aggravates it. The common school to which the children of thieves and harlots and drunkards are driven to sit side by side with our little ones is often by no means a temple of all the virtues. It is sometimes a university of all the vices. The bad infect the good, and your boy and girl come back reeking with the contamination of bad associates and familiar with the coarsest obscenity of the slum. Another great evil is the extent to which our education tends to overstock the labor market with material for quill drivers and shopmen, and gives our youth a distaste for sturdy labor. Many of the most hopeless cases in our shelters are men of considerable education. Our schools help to enable a starving man to tell his story in more grammatical language than that which his father could have employed. But they do not feed him or teach him where to go to get fed. So far from doing this, they increase the tendency to drift into those channels where food is least secure, because employment is most uncertain and the market most overstocked. Try trades unionism, say some, and their advice is being widely followed. There are many and great advantages in trades unionism. The fable of the bundle of sticks is good for all time. The more the working people can be banded together in voluntary organizations created and administered by themselves for the protection of their own interests, the better at any rate for this world, and not only for their own interests but for those of every other section of the community. But can we rely upon this agency as a means of solving the problems which confront us? Trades unionism has had the field to itself for a generation. It is twenty years since it was set free from all the legal disabilities under which it labored. But it has not covered the land. It has not organized all skilled labor. Unskilled labor is almost untouched. At the Congress at Liverpool, only one and a half million workmen were represented. Women are almost entirely outside the pale. Trade unions not only represent a fraction of the laboring classes, but they are, by their constitution, unable to deal with those who do not belong to their body. What ground can there be, then, for hoping that trades unionism will by itself solve the difficulty? 
the most experienced trades unionists will be the first to admit that any scheme which could deal adequately with the out-of-works and others who hang on to their skirts and form the recruiting ground of blacklegs and embarrass them in every way would be of all others that which would be most beneficial to trades unionism the same may be said about cooperation personally i'm a strong believer in cooperation but it must be cooperation based on the spirit of benevolence i don't see how any pacific readjustment of the social and economic relations between classes in this country can be effected except by the gradual substitution of cooperative associations for the present wages system as you will see in subsequent chapters so far from there being anything in my proposals that would militate in any way against the ultimate adoption of the cooperative solution of the question i look to cooperation as one of the chief elements of hope in the future but we have not to deal with the ultimate future but with the immediate present and for the evils with which we are dealing the existing cooperative organizations do not and cannot give us much help another i do not like to call it specific it is only a name a mere mockery of a specific so let me call it another suggestion made when discussing this evil is thrift thrift is a great virtue no doubt but how is thrift to benefit those who have nothing what is the use of the gospel of thrift to a man who had nothing to eat yesterday and has not threepence today to pay for his lodging tonight to live on nothing a day is difficult enough but to save on it would beat the cleverest political economist that ever lived i admit without hesitation that any scheme which weakened the incentive to thrift would do harm but it is a mistake to imagine that social damnation is an incentive to thrift it operates least where its force ought to be most felt there is no fear that any scheme that we can devise will appreciably diminish the deterrent influences which dispose a man to save but it is idle wasting time upon a plea that is only brought forward as an excuse for inaction thrift is a great virtue the inculcation of which must be constantly kept in view by all those who are attempting to educate and save the people it is not in any sense a specific for the salvation of the lapsed and the lost even among the most wretched of the very poor a man must have an object and a hope before he will save a halfpenny let us eat and drink for tomorrow we perish sums up the philosophy of those who have no hope in the thriftiness of the french peasant we see that the temptation of eating and drinking is capable of being resolutely subordinated to the superior claims of the accumulation of a dowry for the daughter or for the acquisition of a little more land for the son of the schemes of those who propose to bring in a new heaven and a new earth by a more scientific distribution of the pieces of gold and silver in the trouser pockets of mankind i need not say anything here they may be good or they may not 
I say nothing against any shortcut to the millennium that is compatible with the Ten Commandments. I intensely sympathize with the aspirations that lie behind all these socialist dreams. But whether it is Henry George's single tax on land values, or Edward Bellamy's nationalism, or the more elaborate schemes of the collectivists, my attitude towards them all is the same. What these good people want to do, I also want to do. But I am a practical man, dealing with the actualities of today. I have no preconceived theories, and I flatter myself I am singularly free from prejudices. I am ready to sit at the feet of any who will show me any good. I keep my mind open on all these subjects, and am quite prepared to hail with open arms any utopia that is offered me. But it must be within range of my fingertips. It is of no use to me if it is in the clouds. Checks on the bank of futurity I accept gladly enough as a free gift, but I can hardly be expected to take them as if they were current coin, or to try to cash them at the Bank of England. It may be that nothing will be put permanently right until everything has been turned upside down. There are certainly so many things that need transforming, beginning with the heart of each individual man and woman, that I do not quarrel with any visionary when, in his intense longing for the amelioration of the condition of mankind, he lays down his theories as to the necessity for radical change, however impractical they may appear to me. But this is the question. Here, at our shelters last night, were a thousand hungry, workless people. I want to know what to do with them. Here is John Jones, a stout, stalwart laborer in rags, who has not had one square meal for a month, who has been hunting for work that will enable him to keep body and soul together, and hunting in vain. There he is in his hungry raggedness, asking for work that he may live, and not die of sheer starvation in the midst of the wealthiest city in the world. What is to be done with John Jones? The individualist tells me that the free play of the natural laws governing the struggle for existence will result in the survival of the fittest, and that, in the course of a few ages more or less, a much nobler type will be evolved. But meanwhile, what is to become of John Jones? The socialist tells me that the great social revolution is looming large on the horizon. In the good time coming, when all wealth will be redistributed and private property abolished, all stomachs will be filled and there will be no more John Jones impatiently clamoring for opportunity to work that they may not die. It may be so. But in the meantime, here is John Jones growing more impatient than ever because, hungrier, who wonders if he is to wait for dinner until the social revolution has arrived. What are we to do with John Jones? That is the question. And to the solution of that question, none of the utopians give me much help. For practical purposes, these dreamers fall under the condemnation they lavish so freely upon the conventional religious people, 
who relieved themselves of all anxiety for the welfare of the poor by saying that in the next world all will be put right. This religious cant, which rids itself of all the importunity of suffering humanity by drawing unnegotiable bills payable on the other side of the grave, is not more impracticable than the socialist claptrap which postpones all redress of human suffering until after the general overturn. Both take refuge in the future to escape a solution of the problems of the present, and it matters little to the sufferers whether the future is on this side of the grave or the other. Both are for them equally out of reach. When the sky falls, we shall catch larks, no doubt. But in the meantime? It is the meantime. That is the only time in which we have to work. It is in the meantime that the people must be fed, that their life's work must be done or left undone forever. Nothing that I have to propose in this book, or that I propose to do by my scheme, will in the least prevent the coming of any of the utopias. I leave the limitless infinite of the future to the utopians. They may build there as they please. As for me, it is indispensable that whatever I do is founded on existing fact and provides a present help for the actual need. There is only one class of men who have cause to oppose the proposals which I am about to set forth. That is those, if such there be who are determined to bring about by any and every means a bloody and violent overturn of all existing institutions. They will oppose the scheme, and they will act logically in so doing. For the only hope of those who are the artificers of revolution is the mass of seething discontent and misery that lies in the heart of the social system honestly believing that things must get worse before they get better. They build all their hopes upon the general overturn, and they resent as an indefinite postponement of the realization of their dreams any attempt at a reduction of human misery. The army of the revolution is recruited by the soldiers of despair, therefore down with any scheme which gives men hope. Insofar as it succeeds, it curtails our recruiting ground and reinforces the ranks of our enemies. Such opposition is to be counted upon and to be utilized as the best of all tributes to the value of our work. Those who thus count upon violence and bloodshed are too few to hinder, and their opposition will merely add to the momentum with which I hope and believe this scheme will ultimately be enabled to surmount all dissent and achieve, with the blessing of God, that measure of success with which I verily believe it to be charged. End of section 10. Recording by Tom Hirsch.